thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. They were always looking down the road at the next war, and they were trying to make sure they were not going to fight the next war with the tactics of the last one. And the 70s were a great example of the school really putting that notion into play and staying ahead of the game. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 142, and if you are just tuning in, then do yourself a favor. Pause this one and go back and start with episode 141 because this is the second part of a two and a half hour interview on the Navy Fighter Weapons School with Mr. Brad Elward, author of the monumental book, Top Gun The Legacy, The Complete History of Top Gun and Its Impact on Tactical Aviation. We have a great discussion going, so without further ado, let's get back to it. It's so interesting to hear you explain all this, Brad, because I still see the fingerprints of all this, at least I did, in the modern staff, you know, the fleet visits, the going different places. And like you had said earlier, the gentleman who was walking on the Raytheon assembly floor looking at missiles. I mean, new SMEs, the bros, they still go all these places and do all these things and incorporate and try to figure out which tactics to teach. And I think as we get to the 2000s in a little bit, we'll find that that same thing happens again as Bull, a friend of mine, and others bring in the fighter tactics. Yeah, just interesting to hear everything that happened in the 70s. So when you get to the 80s, now our friend Bio, everyone knows him, that's when he shows up and his books chronicle that era pretty well. But I got to think the movie really is probably the centerpiece of the 80s. And you said earlier, you titled the 70s in your chapter in the book, The School Expands Its Role. In the 80s, chapter nine, the heyday of Top Gun. So let's get into that. You're right. The 80s really were the pinnacle point for the school. And one of the ways it was in its visibility, and I think a lot of that was, as you said, due to the movie, people in the military knew what Top Gun was. The Air Force certainly knew. Naval aviation certainly knew. The general public outside of San Diego, where Miramar is located, really didn't know much about Top Gun. The movie put the school on the map with the general public, as well as the F-14. And so I think that was a really uh, big port with the visibility. You know, you had a lot of people at that point who saw the movie, wanted to be a fighter pilot, that went to fly the F-14, they went into the Navy as a result. I would have loved to have done that myself, but as you know, I got glasses, and at that time, that was just a, a non, non-plus, not going to happen. But the 80s were really a period where Top Gun solidified its position as kind of the center of excellence, center of tactics. There were some hiccups that took place at various points, which kind of set up the 90s a little bit. But by the time you got to, let's just say, the litmus test of 86, Top Gun had continued to expand its role with the adversary. It had revamped its AIC program to make it a very inclusive program with all of the air control communities. And it was a back and forth. So it was really working well. Top Gun was working well with the fleet. 
they had done some self-examination in the early 80s, they were starting to see some holes in the original model. You know, the original model that we talked about was every squadron sends its best crew picked by the skipper. They show up at Top Gun, go through the program, return to the squadron. Those people were basically mid-first tour, so they were relatively young experience-wise, and then they'd spend the rest of their tour as a, hopefully, a training officer. What they were finding is skippers weren't sending their best crews anymore. They were picking people who were maybe getting ready to leave the Navy, and they thought, well, I'm going to give them this as a bonus. Or, you know, I have a crew that's working hard that I'm going to reward them for that hard work. And so you were starting to get some variances in the people that were showing up at the school. But the bigger problem is a lot of people weren't taking the crews when they graduate and using them as training officers. They'd end up as a maintenance officer or they wouldn't really get an opportunity to share their knowledge. There was not as much of a standard curriculum that was given by the school to be redispersed to the fleet when they returned. So they were starting to see these hiccups. They were starting to see variations in the quality of people coming in, the experience levels of the people that were coming into the school. And so that was starting to raise some concerns. Top Gun's first real responses started in about 85, and they started doing fleet lectures where they would go out during some of their uh, visits to the other installations like Oceana or Cecil Field, and they would start lecturing on Top Gun topics and then invite anybody who wanted to come. They would start going out and flying with these various bases. And in the early 80s, the Strike University was created. It was kind of a similar story with Top Gun. You had the overseas strike in Lebanon in 83, that everything went wrong, it seemed. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they did a big internal study and came out and said, we need a Top Gun-like event for the air wing. And so they created the Strike U out at Fallon, which is still out there, but with a slightly different name. And Top Gun was instrumental in helping format that as far as giving them models of our Top Gun lecture styles. You talk to the instructors like, well, we help them organize the lectures. We let them come to our lectures. We gave them a shared material. We helped them with organization. But Tompkin also created some programs that were administered at Strike U. Overland Air Superiority Training was one of those programs where they would go and they would deliver lectures as a part of the Strike program. And so Top Gun got involved in that. They started a senior officer refresher course. And so there were a lot of things that Top Gun was doing to help take that role that they started in the 70s and expand it even further. But now you get to the mid-80s and all of a sudden Top Gun makes the next jump from its own independent command to what they call it Echelon 2 Command, which means no longer reporting to the people at Miramar, they report directly up to the Pentagon. And so it was a really big deal for Top Gun to have that ability to kind of skip over the local bosses and go straight to Washington. It gave them a ton of clout. It gave them a lot of clout with the fleet. And with that clout, they also then were given command of Top Gun to a captain. So in 1986, the skipper then was elevated to a captain. So they started bringing in Navy captains. What that did is that allowed them to have more clout with the fleet when they would speak. And mm -hmm. when Top Gun would go out and the commanding officer would talk to the air wings or whoever it would be in Washington, now you had a Navy captain speaking to you. And so it really is one of the main reasons why I say Top Gun had reached a pinnacle because it was a strong militarily in a presence way that it had ever been. It had the most significant reach at that point that it had ever had. And then the movie. The movie created 
a public yeah. explosion of Top Gun interest and support. I mean, I don't know how many times I've read articles, and I'm sure you have too in your audience. Top Gun pilots do this, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's happened? And you look at it, it's like, no, it's not Top Gun. They're talking about an Air Force fighter pilot. It's not a Top Gun pilot. <laughs> you know? It's like, okay. So now everybody's a Top Gun pilot. Yeah. And I think that was in part because of the movie. But, you know, the 80s were just an example of a school that had gotten extremely powerful and had a great reach. They had gotten to the point in the 80s where Top Gun was consulting with Navy permission, of course, with industry on the development of new weapon systems, on analysis of current systems, on new aircraft that were being planned and the requirements that they wanted to see in these things. And they became the experts even more on the threat that was out there facing the country. And so it really had become an incredibly powerful organization. But there were some fun things, too, that happened. Top Gun, if you were an instructor in the 80s, in the late 80s, you got to fly the F-16N. Oh, yeah. Which was a very, very slick fourth generation <laughs> aircraft that really allowed the Top Gun instructors to fly adversary at a new level mm -hmm. when they flew against the students. And that was a huge, huge plus for the staff. It was a huge plus to their credibility in encapsulating the threat and being able to simulate the threat. And I know they loved flying those in addition to the A4s at the time. Yeah. You'd said earlier, Brad, if you could roll back the clock, you know, where you'd like to go be an F-14 Rio. I think if I could, I'd like to be a post-movie Top Gun bro able to fly the F-16N because by all accounts, Nickel, forget his real name, I think you've probably referenced his information in your book. He wrote an amazing article about what it was like to fly the F-16N and it just sounded, like you said, the heyday. The officers club was still fun for a time until that got stamped out. Their stock was definitely trading at a 52-week high. And yeah, I've heard that F-16N was pretty impressive. I guess part of the impressiveness of its ability to fly was its very downfall because they had taken an F-16, put the big engine in it, took the gun out, didn't hang any pylons or anything else. And those guys went and flew the wings off almost literally, which was great training for a time, but they didn't last very long. And so I'll let you respond to all that, but then um, I'm going to be ready to jump into the 90s here if you'd like. Sure. The F-16N was a real blessing to the instructors. And I think the unexpected early departure, I think, hurt Top Gun in the 90s with its credibility mm -hmm. because it didn't have that ability to represent to the fullest some of the threats that it was trying to portray at the time. You know, I talked to several of the people that were there, a couple of the guys that were kind of in charge of the Top Gun maintenance of the F-16s at the time. And they were very, very clear that we flew the aircraft within its limits, but when we flew the aircraft, we were always flying it at the high end of its limits. They didn't use the F-16N to replicate a MiG-17 threat, MiG-21 threat. They used it for the MiG-23. They used it for the MiG-29, the Su-27. It was always in a high, high performance regime. You know, if you look at a normal Air Force F-16, it has a lot of different things that it does. It takes off, it flies to the bombing range, it does its bombing routine, it might engage in a little dogfight for a small portion, then it goes back and it lands. F-16N at Top Gun took off, jumped into a dogfight, did another one, maybe did a third one, landed, refueled, checked everything over and went right back up. Mm -hmm. It was really utilized at the high end of its performance spectrum. And that did, as it would any aircraft, lead to a higher level of fatigue 
And I know they were very sensitive about that because there were some people that were saying, you guys broke those. And they're like, no, 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 no. We did not break them. We flew them within their limits, yeah. but all of our flying was largely within the high end of their performance limits. And so fatigue happens. We wrung them out, they might say, right? So if you have a race car and you go out and race it, guess what? You're going to wear out the engine. You're going to wear out the tires. Yes. You're going to treat it like a race car. And that's not going to be good for it if you want it to also serve as the family <laughs> grocery getter. So you could accuse them of abusing them. But I think probably for the folks who got the training during those few years, it was probably amazing training. And so no, that's true. And there's one last factor that really played a role too. The fatigue of the F-16s, which came from the Air Force. I mean, they were an Air Force aircraft. They were a special variant of it, but they were evaluated under Navy standards, which accommodate different stress levels in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And so I think that played a role as well. They weren't really looking at them in the right light. They probably could have used them longer, Yeah, but that was beyond Top Gun's control. That wasn't their call. But the 90s. Yeah, new roles, new home, it says here. Yeah, the 90s were one of the most important. I go back and forth where I want to say, you know, you look at the founding and you look at the 90s. The 90s couldn't have happened without the founding, but it's got to be almost at the same level as far as importance in the school. And there were some things that were happening around the world that really had an impact on Top Gun. They entered the decade kind of really riding high on the hog. I mean, they were coming out of the, a very successful decade in the 80s. They were the Echelon 2 command. They were really making a lot of progress. But many different things took place that all kind of converged in about the 93-4 time frame that caused kind of a whole redirection for the school, which is still the direction that it's going today. I'll try to talk about those briefly here. One of them was what we had talked about a little bit earlier where we were discussing some of the issues that had arisen in the early 80s where they were looking at the differences in the people that were coming to the school and what was being done with their graduates when they graduated. That was accelerating. To make it worse, the Marines had started a program, a uh, weapons tactic instructor, WTI program in the 80s. It was a very sophisticated tactics training program that they put their fighter pilots through. The Marines that were coming to Top Gun as students were not only further along in their career, they were basically the equivalent of a Navy pilot who had been through his first JO tour, but they were also pilots and aircrew that had gone through the WTI program. Then when they would come to Top Gun, they would return to their squadron and they would work as a training officer. And so that was starting to show some issues at the school was also starting to ring some bells about maybe we needed something along those lines. It's a very complicated story. I tried to lay it out in the book. I talked to all the people involved and tried to relate that history. But you had as a part one, Top Gun starting to realize, boy, to continue to be relevant and produce a high quality product, we need to kind of revamp what it is that we're calling our product. Then they also started looking around at the Air Force Weapons School. And at that point, the Air Force Weapons School had kind of really catapulted. Some of the Top Gun instructors were going to the Weapons School at Nellis, and they were saying, boy, the length of their lectures and the depth of their lectures is quite extensive. Why aren't we doing that? And so they were starting to do an internal evaluation about, well, how deep do we want to get? We need to get further into the weeds on these topics. So while all that's going on, then comes the end of the Cold War. 
the F-14 outer air battle mission is now diminishing significantly because the Soviets are no longer and there's no more Soviet bombers with anti-ship missiles. There is now a new brown water threat. Blue water, you're out in the open ocean. Brown water, you're in the littorals. Mm -hmm. There is now a concern about supporting operations on land. So they're starting to change what the focal point of naval aviation is going to be. Well, then we have the Gulf War. And the Gulf War shows everyone that precision-guided munitions are the future. The Navy was lacking in that. The Gulf War showed that the strike fighter, the F-18, is really a great concept. And the F-18 can really do this job that we've talked about. Top Gun was starting to ask itself, okay, do we want to get back into air to ground? You know, one thing we didn't talk about was when Top Gun was founded, the founders were kind of foisted upon the idea that they had to teach one week of air to ground. So you had a four-week course, three weeks were air to air combat, one week was air to ground. They didn't want to do that, but that was one thing that was forced upon them. They discarded that when Pete Pettigrew left in 71, and they went to a pure air to air syllabus. And that's how it remained up until the early 1990s, all air to air. They had brought in some air to ground with Willie Driscoll's creation of the electronic warfare training that took place in 74, 75. And then again, with roughly 86 post operations against Libya, when El Dorado Canyon, mm-hmm. the use of the F-18 and the role with the harm missile. So that started to creep into the course more. So there was a little bit of it, but the 1991 war really was a drive home. Look, we've got this aircraft out there that performs as an attack aircraft and a fighter. We need to start teaching to that because that's the future. And of course, with the Tomcat losing the outer air battle mission out of necessity of the end of the Cold War, the Tomcat community was saying, how do we stay relevant? Here we are, the fighters, and now what are we going to do? There's not a big air threat around anymore. What's our role? So they started looking at how to make the Tomcat into a strike fighter. And of course, as Bio has said many times, the Tomcat was designed with an inherent bombing capability. It was always there. It was never pushed forward because you had the A6 and the A7. They did a very good job with that role. So that community was starting to realize it needed to go in the strike fighter direction. So the first big wave of change at Top Gun came about in 92 as they started to revamp the depth of the course. And in 93, as they started to say, we need to incorporate it at ground. So they revamped the syllabus. The new syllabus that came out in 94 included air to ground training and included strike fighter missions. And it really was starting to move forward and bringing in precision guided weapons, a walleye. I know one of the instructors I interviewed was a walleye. He was very disappointed to go to Top Gun and have his lecture that he got be the walleye instead of something that was more fighter oriented. <laughs> but nevertheless, he did a great job on it I'm sure. from uh, all reports. So that started Top Gun moving in a very different direction from the all air to air. But the big change was now to circle back and say, well, what do we do with this whole notion of the WTI? Top Gun started coming up with this idea, let's have a Navy version of the Marine Tactics Instructor. Let's see if we can get created a designated training officer so that when we graduate an instructor, there is a designated position for that person to go into when they return to the fleet. And so they came up with the Navy version of that, which was the Strike Fighter Weapons and Tactics Program, which was kind of based in somewhat on what the Marines were doing in the Air Force. 
And then the individual that would instruct it was the Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor, the SFTI. That was a major, major change because what it did is it took the selection of the Top Gun student out of the control of the skipper. Skipper had input, but it became a Navy decision with Top Gun input. And then the individual coming to Top Gun would be a post-first tour J.O., so they had a lot more experience around the boat and in possible combat, et cetera. And then that person would be selected to come to Top Gun, attend the program, and then would complete a three-year, in essence, land tour where they would then serve as an instructor either at Top Gun on staff, over at Strike, in one of the weapons schools on either coast, in one of the two fleet replenishment squadrons, formerly called the RAGs, Mm -hmm. or in one of the VX experimental evaluation squadrons. At the end of that three-year time, then the individual would then go back to a fleet squadron, not necessarily where they came from, and serve a tour as a training officer. And so getting that program sold and getting that program accepted by the Marines, because they weren't real crazy about it. They had their WTI, they had their own weapons school, MOTS, down in Yuma. And they were not real crazy about Top Gun going to an air-to-ground mode and then Top Gun going to this, in essence, WTI program. And there was a lot of issues going on behind the scenes on that. So that was really the essence of the 1990 to 1995 timeframe, is where do we go with this school to keep it relevant? And to make sure that in the budget cuts that were following the end of the Cold War, that we weren't one of them. Yeah. And there were a lot of things that I detail in the book that were being floated around as kind of some weird ideas of what to do with Top Gun. And luckily, the people came up with this wonderful foresight of a path. And in 1995, in March, I was actually out at Top Gun visiting on a wholly unrelated project, obviously, in 1995, just before they rolled this out. It was really interesting. I still had some of my notes from then, so I was able to draw upon that. They rolled that program out in March of 95. They kind of grandfathered in some of the former training officers, ran them back through kind of a mini program to get them up to speed. And that program was really up and fully running and in place by the time the late 90s came about. So Top Gun as a school really changed its product and vastly improved its product and really uh, made a name for itself with that change. Now, the other big thing that happened was, as you mentioned, the move, the relocation from Miramar to Fallon. It was interesting because one of the things I didn't mention in the 80s, that was a real dramatic thing, is Top Gun started the groundwork to have its own building, its own dedicated, specially built building the Top Gun courses in. And it was completed and opened in July of 92. Well, was it too much longer after that <laughs> opened that Top Gun was told, hey, guess what, guys, you're going to Fallon. That didn't set real well. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people like coming to Miramar and they like San Diego. San Diego and Fallon are very different places. Yes, indeed. There was a lot of uncertainty about that. But the other thing that took place with the move is that Top Gun moved from an Echelon 2 command to an Echelon 3. It lost a ranking spot. Mm-hmm. When it moved to Fallon, it was then made a department under the Naval Air Warfare Center, which was a precursor to Nautic that we have today, the right. Naval Air Warfare Development Center. There was a lot of controversy about that. Because, you know, if you go back and you look at portions of the book that talk about some of the issues that were arising, 
you know, there were efforts to really kind of tame Top Gun, to tame that history that it had. You know, it was obviously the longest standing weapons school in the Navy at the time. Strike was about 12 years old, 11 years old when that happened. The uh, Top Dome E2 weapons school was probably six years old. And that was really about it. There was a light attack weapons school that had come up and down in the mm-hmm. 80s and 70s. But Top Gun had a lot of lore at that point. They had a lot of traditions and there were a lot of people that were kind of pushing on that. Well, you guys in that fancy flight suit with your own name tags and your special colored <laughs> t-shirts. So there was a lot of controversy at Strike about were the Top Gun instructors going to get to keep some of that identity after quite a bit of work back and forth by the end of the decade, they had kind of worked those out and allowed all of the weapons schools because a couple of the Seahawk weapons school came up in 98. All of them then started to have their own identity with their own colored t-shirts, their own name tags and, right. and the way to go. Uh, that identity crisis that happened to Top Gun is a big, big, big part of its story and a big, big part of the 90s. So, you know, when I look at the decade, You've got the move. You've got the identity crisis on one hand. You've got the school realizing that it's got an issue of relevancy moving forward because of matters outside of its control. And you've got the school taking affirmative action to go forth and resolve those issues. So it's a fascinating decade by a group of instructors that were really aware of what was going on, aware of the consequences if they failed and took serious action to change the path forward. And the SFTI program is not only alive and well today, but it is now the staple model of training across all aviation communities, and now I believe the surface and subsurface communities as well. So, I mean, it is the deal, and it all stemmed from that. Well, this is where my story begins to interweave into this, Brad, because I was winged in 1995 and joined the fleet in 1996. And one of our first training officers at VFA 86 was Jeff Winter, Chile. And he spoke very highly of Top Gun. And we talked about the move and a few other things. We don't necessarily need to debate it, but I think it's worth pointing out. And I'm not suggesting you're not making this case, but right. I mean, if we go back to what we talked about an hour ago already, the reason Top Gun started was because of poor air-to-air performance. And so to say that that's what they were focusing on makes sense because that's where they were started. But then once you have that culture of excellence and the folks that are demonstrating the ability to take what you do in strike fighter aviation, maybe they didn't call it back then, but that's what we call it now, and say, hey, look, we can adapt the same policy of murder boards, recommendations, tactics, and procedures, and adapt that to the other things that we do. And in fact, you see that now. And so I think it sounds like there were some growing pains around that. And it makes sense because again, hey, look, in Vietnam, we could bomb targets. Some were better than others, sure. But we didn't really have that cataclysmic failure that caused the air to air in the first place. And then the last thing I'll say is that I'm told the Marines are very thankful for that building because <laughs> for those who are listening or maybe don't remember history, around the mid-90s is when the BRAC, right, Base Realignment Commission, anyway, whatever BRAC stands for, they came along and somehow convinced the Navy that, oh, you should give Miramar to the Marines. But you can keep Lamore in Hanford and a few other places. So, sorry, I'll get off my uh, high horse here. But at any rate, the base was going to be turned over and the Top Gun folks needed a new home anyway and folded in up to uh, Fallon. So, that's a great point because in my investigations and research for the book, I discovered that there was actually talk of relocating Top Gun to Fallon 
as early as the early 80s, particularly when strike was formulated. Oh, wow. One of the reasons that that issue kept resurfacing up until the actual decision was made, there was a desire to have Top Gun and Strike located in the same place. There was also the issue of the various ranges. They had a very, very good instrumented range up at Fallon. Mm -hmm. Top Gun did not have that handy. They had to fly to, I believe, Yuma in those days and fly back. And there was a lot of thought, you know, it makes sense if we just take off, go right on our range, do our job and come back. We're going to save a lot of money. We're going to save a lot of time. We can have more flights. And by the way, we're all going to be by each other. I think the thing was, everybody thought they would be all standing by each other as an Echelon 2 program, not all subservient. And so I think that was one of the issues that they had a lot of trouble swallowing. So when you combine the BRAC that closed Miramar as a Navy facility and turned it over to the Marines, the only real natural thought, I know there were some people that talked about putting it at Lemoore, and there were some people that talked about sending it to Yuma, but the only natural conclusion was to go to Fallon. So I think Many people who I interviewed who were initially opposed to that came around to understand that for all the other reasons, it made a lot of sense. It certainly wasn't San Diego, right? but it did offer a lot of other benefits. They could utilize live ordinance. I didn't worry about flying over a residence. <laughs> right. And I think they would do debts up there anyway, right? From Miramar, they would go up on a detachment for a week or something at some point. So yeah, yeah. not great for the families, but great for the training. So absolutely. All right. Well, I did look it up real quick while you were talking. Base realignment and closure. You don't hear too much about it anymore, but in the 80s and 90s. In fact, I had a lot of bases closed behind me. El Toro, yes, Miramar before I could get there. They tried to close Meridian when I was in flight school, but that survived. So when I was in my first squadron, as you stated, right now it's you go at the end of your tour. And big thanks to Chili Winter, who uh, was in the squadron. And I wanted to do you know, the most and the best that I could. And I had already heard about it, but didn't really think that much about it. When he tried to talk me into going, I said, yeah, sure, let's give this a chance. And we don't necessarily need to talk about how they select people, but I went through one of the early classes in 2000. I stayed till almost the end of 2002. And then to your point, I went and did my training officer tour at VFA 97 and then stayed in the air wing and went to my department head tour at VFA 94. And then for reasons we don't have to get into, I ended up at one of those weapons schools that you talked about. I was already a Top Gun graduate, so that made that easy. And while I was there as the department head, if you will, we had a lot of new pilots come in and join me. That's where I met Grand Mariner for the first time and a bunch of others, probably some that you've even interviewed. And so I got to be there while Bull and his buddies were putting the Navy through its change to fighter tactics. And so those are the things I think of. And certainly that while I was on the staff, we had a couple mishaps in close proximity to each other. And then we had another incident. But when you wrote your book, what are some of the things that stood out to you? And, and we didn't talk until 13 later, right? but you did title that chapter, Adapting to New Technology and New Threats. I had a little harder time trying to figure out what to call the 2000s. But as I stood back, there were a couple things that really stood out. From a technology perspective, you had the arrival of the F-18EF Super Hornet. Mm-hmm. 2001, first class came through. That was a big deal because it offered some things potentially, not necessarily at that time, but potentially that the Hornet did not. You had the departure of the F-14. That's right. The aircraft that the public certainly <laughs> associated with Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And you had quite a few instructors who were you know, Top Gun and 
pilots in Rios. So that was a big event that took place. And one of the problems that they ran into in the early 2000s is there were fewer and fewer Tomcats in the fleet coming through. But there were also issues with the F-14s that were the adversary aircraft that Top Gun flew that were then owned by NSOC. They were Top Gun jets, but they were owned by NSOC. And there were a lot of maintenance issues. So they're having trouble keeping them up. And they were having trouble with the aircraft coming into the program, keeping them completely operational so that they could work. So I know there were a lot of issues to overcome with that. So those are two of the things that the school faced. But one of the big issues, not the biggest, but one of the big issues was obviously we were involved in Afghanistan and Iraq Mm -hmm. from 2001 on and 2003 on for the rest of the decade. Both of those conflicts presented a couple interesting things. Very little to no air-to-air threat, very little to no surface-to-air threat, and a massive amount close air support. As you mentioned, Top Gun's bread and butter has always been the air-to-air combat. You know, while they certainly have an air-to-ground aspect and have for many years since the mid-90s, they still view themselves as an air-to-air instructional program. You had some people saying, well, hey, if we're doing all this bombing, why do we need you guys to tell us how to be dogfighters when we really don't have a dogfight threat anymore? And so that issue was surfacing. I think the answer to that is exactly what you said. I heard that from the mouths of several former skippers. They said, when I was justifying what we were doing, it was simply this. When you're training people to operate in a hygiene environment where things are happening very, very, very fast and in the fluidity of air combat, that gives you training and decision-making qualities that will then facilitate your work in air to ground. So we are training them to a level that everything else then will follow. So I think that was an important thing that happened is the continuation of that mentality. Hey, we do still train air to air, even though there's not an obvious threat in our face. Right now. But the other thing that happened is there were some things that were manifesting in the various overseas wars where there were some deficiencies or stuff that they didn't think that they would need to train for that were really becoming problems. And one of them was firing the gun at night in close air support at low altitude. Top Gun was responsible for refashioning the TTPs, if I got that right, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are their recommendations as far as how to engage in that. And there were a lot of other things that went on with respect to various close air support tactics and weapons and work with the special ops community that Top Gun embraced and brought into the program and really honed and turned out phenomenal products. So that was one of the big things that happened with respect to the bulk of the decade. And I think a lot of that started in about 04-ish. You know, when I look at the 2000s, the biggest thing was the recognition that the air-to-air threat, the potential threat had changed. And I know you were in on the ground floor of this. In the 90s, the base level threat was the MiG-29. And I think with Top Gun's teachings and the exposure in the 90s to the former Soviet bloc countries that operated the MiG-29, I think throughout the various exchanges that we did or the exercises that we did with those former Soviet allies, I think Top Gun realized that what we were teaching on the MiG-29 was spot on. We understand the threat and we understand how to counter it. But what I think was recognized in the early 2000s was that the Su-27 was becoming more of a threat. You can correct me if I'm wrong because you were there. But as that started to be recognized by Top Gun, not necessarily by the Navy as a whole, but by Top Gun, 
In 2004, the Air Force was involved in the Cope India exercise, where they went up against the SU-27 and some of its derivatives, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of problems. What that did is it caused the Navy to then build on what you were all saying, hey, this aircraft is going to be the threat of the future and we need to be prepared for it. They started what they call fighter tactics. It was a funny discussion with people because it's like, we can't tell you anything about this topic. This is completely classified other than what we call it. So our whole discussion for the book was, well, how did we recognize we had a problem and how did we come up with the solution without telling you what the solution was (laughs) And then how did we implement it? So while I talk about it, I have no idea what fighter tactics is because it's classified. And so all the people that helped contribute to the book when they were proofreading it, everybody was very, very cautious not to reveal anything Mm -hmm. that would be helpful to anybody who would be an adversary. But I was able to glean that there was a need to revamp how the air combat arena was approached because of the SU-27 that threat was analyzed and addressed. And that was one of the biggest things that happened in that decade. And it's the same mentality that Top Gun has exhibited over and over that has kept them ahead of the game. Even going back to the Malibu conference, the integration of one be many, the aim val, ace val, the introduction of night tactics in the 80s, then the introduction of the AMRAM in the 90s, and staying ahead of where the Soviet fighters were going. That has always been a hallmark of Top Gun. And the 2000s were just a a continuation of that by the school. It's the school at its best. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. I agree. And I'm inclined as I think about what I'm about to say to really drop anchor on all this because I was involved in it. But in reality, I think for the listeners, as we've been going for quite a while here, I think it suffices to say that while we had always done something one way, we had a massive paradigm shift in our tactics based on what we saw about the threat and what the Air Force had figured out in their experiences with the, I believe it was the Indians. And so my friend Bull and some others decided, all right, well, this is the way we're going to do it now. And I was at the weapons school at the time when that happened, Brad. It was like an earthquake in Lemoore because suddenly everything you've tried so hard to get good at for so long just changed, right? The playbook changed and the way we do it and the things we think and the assumptions going into it. That was challenging in itself, but then also, and you address this in the book, because that is one of the sections I skimmed because I was looking for myself and I found me on 423, thank you, um, (laughs) is that 
they put it out maybe a little early and got fleet buy-in because they really need to see the validation and make sure everyone understood that it worked. But then what happened is it changed a lot. And I found it very difficult as I got older as a fighter pilot to keep track of, well, what is it today? And that's not a slander on the bros. That's just when you're not on the staff, and I can say this from obviously both perspectives, when you're on the staff, man, you're right there drinking from the fire hose, talking to the burning bush every day. But when you're out in the fleet, all of a sudden you just get the result of, Hey, this is what Top Gun recommends this week. It felt like at the time. And so then you'd have to try to remember those numbers and go out and do it. And it got very difficult. And as I got more senior, I had less time to spend on those tactics. And so I found it somewhat frustrating because I could only dedicate a small amount of time to it versus scheduling SFARPs or whatever we were doing at the weapons school. Or then I ran off to uh, CAG five in Japan and we're dealing with everything out there. So I remember it was tectonic, if that's the right use of that word. I mean, it was a big, big change. And if anything, I think it aligned us a little better with the Air Force. Because one thing, among many things that we have not talked about, you and I, and we've talked about a lot today, and someone, I'm sure, invariably, who does sit through all this is going to say, how come you didn't talk about this or that or the other 500 things? Well, in the interest of both of our bladders, Brad, I don't know if we can talk about it all today, but One thing it did that we didn't do, I don't think, a good job of before that was better aligned us with what the Air Force started doing. Because you talked about why they weren't doing it earlier in the 50s, but once the fighter mafia, if you will, sort of took back over the Air Force and the F-15 and the F-16, I think, dare I say, they might have had a better go at some of those procedures before we did. And even they found out maybe it wasn't the best when they went and faced the Indians at Cope, uh, what was it called again? Cope India. Cope India, yeah. That's a great point. And you're right. If you go back to the 80s, one of the reasons that Top Gun started the Air Force Instructor Exchange Program, and they would bring an Air Force pilot in, usually F-15, to serve on the staff, was a recognition that the Air Force had really put together a good program. It was the beginning of the sharing of the information between the two weapons schools that continued for quite a while, many decades after that. They've recently redone that. I think there was a period of time where they stopped that, but then they restarted it again. And it's been an important part of the school. There's some tactics that I'm generally aware of from the 80s that the Air Force Weapons School was very, very prime on. They were instrumental in bringing those over to Top Gun, in particular right around the time of the Gulf War, shortly thereafter. And I think that was very valuable for the school as well. And I talk about that in the book a little bit, but that's a great point. For some reason, I was thinking Cope Thunder, but yeah, Cope India, I don't know why that didn't come to my mind. All right. So then as we get into the 10s, and and of course, we're barely into the 20s now, so we can kind of go from 10 on to today. Again, in your book, you call it sequestration and a return to the past. And so again, for those who've listened to me ramble on for five years here on this show, they might know that I did go back up to Fallon 2013 to 15. I got there right after the sequestration. But I wasn't wearing the light blue t-shirt of the bros anymore. A lot of guys do go back a second time. I went back and worked for, it was still NSOC at the time. And I had a really different seat to view just what they go through because suddenly, while I wanted to give them my full allegiance, my current job was the operations officer for NSOC. And I had a rough time dividing up the ranges, the airspace, the aircraft, the flight hours. They really wanted to do what they need to do. And as has always been true, I think, since they joined NSOC, it was always a bit of a sibling, I don't want to say sibling rivalry. We all got along well, but it was always a food fight 
for resources. And so that was never more true for me than it was when I was the one suddenly having to tell the bros why I couldn't give them the aircraft or the time they needed. And I didn't enjoy that. But at any rate, what can you tell me about the 10s? You really did a great segue into that because one of the big issues of the early 2010s was the availability of jets. Mm -hmm. And that was impacted by a number of things. The sequester in Washington, the limits on the budget the strike fighter shortfall, and many of the strike fighter shortfall issues stem from the, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but the overuse in comparison to projections of the Hornet and Super Hornet in the various overseas operations of the 2000s. What you had is Super Hornets that were being flown more than they anticipated and Hornets that were being flown more. And so you had a lot more aircraft in maintenance a lot more aircraft in maintenance means you don't have as many aircraft available. You know, the Top Gun model, as it came with SFTI, also brought with it a change in how Top Gun got its aircraft for its students. In the old days, before SFTI, the Top Gun students came from their squadrons with usually two birds and a maintenance crew. The maintenance crew would work around the clock to make sure that one of those two aircraft was able to fly. And then being at Miramar, a lot of times if there was a down jet or two, then the Top Gun could say, hey, VF-1, can we need a jet? You've got one down your home. Can we use one? And they get one. But when they went to Fallon, that changed. And not only did that change, but when the students would come, remember, they weren't coming from a squadron anymore. They were gone from whatever squadron they were with. So they had to devise a new way to get aircraft. And they became essentially loners that came from the Atlantic and Pacific wing. Mm-hmm strike fighter wings. And so as the strike fighter wings in circa 210 suffered from maintenance issues associated with inadvertent overuse, then the ability of them to provide jets to Top Gun became an issue. And so having the appropriate number of jets to be able to fly your class became a very big point for Top Gun. Top Gun was trying to obtain more current fleet representative aircraft to fly either with the students or as adversary. And that became an issue as well during sequester and to some extent still is. Yeah, Sequester really did define a lot of the early part of the decade. But there were two other things I think that really stick out. You know, as you said, there's so many topics oh, yes. that I talked about in the book that we're not talking about. I don't mean to diminish them. I'm just trying to highlight ones that I know the audience is probably aware of. You know, there's some other issues that weren't talked about for various reasons in the book. You know, if you look at the 2010s, the other two big issues that pop out to me, Top Gun had started to realize, as they did in the early 2000s with fighter tactics, the threat environment was changing, that we were returning to the past with a peer or near peer adversary, i.e. China, Russia. And as we see now with the Russian situation, they were exactly right about that. Mm -hmm. But what that meant was the need to engage in air-to-air combat with near-peer adversaries and to address a possible threat against a carrier battle group that would rival the Soviet Union in the height of the Cold War when the outer air battle mission existed. So you saw Top Gun starting to re-examine that threat and making sure that they were prepared for it and also dusting off some of the concepts of outer air battle that had really largely fallen away and maybe been taken over by other systems, et cetera, but needed to be revisited again as both the Chinese and the Russians started to kind of push in that direction. So there was definitely a refocus, and that's one of the reasons I talked about return to the past 
we're back in an environment right now where we clearly have a peer and near peer threat adversary scenario. Top Gun has been on the ball on that for a decade yeah, and has been working in that direction. So that's a big deal. And so if I can just comment on that, because earlier you had said that we really focused, and I agree, I remember I was on the staff when 9-11 happened, and then as we entered into Afghanistan and Iraq, and it didn't take long, Brad, before someone started saying, well, why are you doing so much air-to-air, and why are you flying so much 1v1, because that's really hard on the aircraft. It was just dumbfounding us, because it's like, well, do you know why we exist? as a school, because we weren't good at this. And so the point I would like to make is that I think Top Gun, at least I hope, and and I certainly tried, kept the fire burning, if you will, of, look, these are important skills, getting back to what we began this whole discussion with, that we can't afford to lose track of and forget. While maybe right now it's not the flavor of the week to know how to BFM, as you said earlier, right, when you do BFM, you understand energy and your aircraft so much better. But also there will come a time when air-to-air will be important. And oh, by the way, that's how we got here in the first place. So let's not forget it. And so now I'll I'll stop. But (laughs) the point is, hey, what do you know? We're back. (laughs) No, great point. I completely agree. Yeah. The third aspect, I think, of that decade is the way Top Gun embraced and prepared for the arrival of the F-35. That discussion, in some ways, is kind of like the fighter tactics. You know, it's a very confidential aircraft. There's a lot of secrecy around it. So, you know, we limited our conversations not to what you're doing tactically, of course, but to what Top Gun was doing to prepare for this revolutionary aircraft mm-hmm. and really the very first efforts to anticipate the arrival of the F-35 began in the late 2000s. And there was some work that Top Gun did with the F-22 community. Then there was some work that Top Gun did to help embed some of its instructors, former instructors at the time into the Marine Corps F-35 program and get feedback on what they were seeing. And then there was all the work that Top Gun did to help stand up the F-35C Fleet Replenishment Squadron that was originally down in Eglin to populate that with a lot of patchwares and to have a line of communication back with Top Gun to apprise them of what they were seeing, what the aircraft could do and where it could go and how it would impact the air wing and what could be used with the air wing. And so Top Gun wanted to make sure that when they got their new weapon system, that they were as prepared as possible to receive it into the fleet. I know when the Super Hornet came in, I think Top Gun, the people that I talked to, probably wasn't as prepared to receive that as they had hoped that they would be. There was a lot of kind of discussions back and forth about what we're going to do with the plane, what can it do? It was complicated by the fact that when the F-18 Super Hornet arrived, it arrived in kind of a staging system. The original aircraft that they got were not near as capable as what the Block 2s and now the Block 3s are. So it was an evolutionary process. And so you got this airplane that looked new, smelled new, had the potential to do all these cool new things, but none of the stuff to allow you to do it was really there yet. They really weren't as up on what they wanted to do with it until later. And so Top Gun, I had this told to me on many occasions, we wanted to make sure that we got through the implementation and arrival of the F-35 in a much smoother course than we did. And it sounds like that they've been able to do that. I know in class 0220 was the first F-35C, and I think they've a class, and I think they've got as many as four or five instructors on the staff now that teach 
classes, programs directly related to the F-35C program. Mm -hmm. They've succeeded in doing that. And I wish at this point I was still back in the inner circles of being allowed to understand what they're doing and how the tactics have changed. And I think part of the reason, this is just me opining, when the F-18 Super Hornet came around, it had the term F-18 on it. And so we already knew the legacy Hornet. We said, okay, it's a little bigger, a little slower in some cases, but it's got, oh, well, eventually we're going to get this AESA radar. So we'll have to figure out what that means when it gets here. I think it was very much tied to the F-18. I can remember when we sent Bluto down to get his qual, he was like the first one and he came back and talked about it. But the F-35, we all knew and turns out to be true. It sounds like that it was going to be a game changer. Just on this show, we've had Chip Burke and Billy Flynn yep. and Cinco Hamilton and a few others talk about it's completely unlike anything else. And so, yeah, it makes sense that Top Gun is looking at it, hopefully with a blank sheet of paper. And I trust, and you and I have to take it on value from the other side of the fence now that they are looking at it and coming up with, as they always have, the best recommendation for how to employ that aircraft weapon system the most effectively. Yeah, I agree with you. And you mentioned Chip. He was the one I was referring to. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a great guy. You talk about a knowledgeable individual. Oh, he's yeah. got a lot of different vantage points of experience. Wow. He's impressive. Oh, no doubt about it. We've had him on the show many times and everyone always asks for him to come back. So, Oh, I can understand. Brad, I'm tempted to ask you what the future for Top Gun holds as if studying the last 50 years makes you the expert. And in my opinion, it does. In the last two hours plus, I've, uh, I hope verified that as well. But how much are you in tune with where it's going to go? I mean, like you said, we invited you to the reunion. So I hope they've made you an honorary bro, maybe even given you a call sign that we can ask the last question of the interview here. But do you know, do you get to talk to people as far as where it's going to go from here? I still have contact with several people. One of the great things of this book has been the people, Mm. the people that I've met and several people, you included, have become good friends. And there's a couple people that I elevate to the point of saying they're some of my closest friends and they all came from my experiences doing this book and spending just tons of time with them. So I still have a lot of contact. I have been reintroduced to each of the successive commanding officers since Pops left command and went on to the rest of his career. I still am kind of watching what happens. You know, one thing I was told by my publisher recently is that in a few years, we will do an edition. So now I'm thinking to myself, do we make volume two? Because at some point you can only put so many pages in a book, Mm. you know, with the footnotes that I've got over 4,000 of them that I tried to help build the credibility we're kind of running out of room. But the hope is with the context that I've been able to maintain that I can keep close to the school going forward and be able to embody, you know, what's going on in the 2020s. One of my problems, and you'll notice this in the book as you keep reading, once you hit the 90s, the chapters get smaller. And I comment on this in the book. The closer we are to today's reality, the less we can talk about because it impacts the lives of our people and the tactics that are used by our country and everything. And so A lot of the stuff that I hint at in the 2010s and certainly the stuff that I did comment on the 20s is a lot more closely guarded by the school, which we would want them to do. And certainly something that I tried to accommodate and not to even speculate into any grounds. I think going forward, what you're going to see is a revalidation of Top Gun's mission of air to air. I think that is going to play a bigger and bigger role. I think you're going to continue to see them recognize the need to stay on top of tomorrow's threat 
and adapt to the new technologies, whether it's the next generation fighter that we're talking about. Right now, they're watching closely what's happening with the first and second deployments of the F-35. I know I think we just completed the first one, the second one's underway. All those are lesson learning opportunities. You know, I can guarantee you there's a constant word of dialogue going back and forth between those people and Top Gun to know what's going on with the aircraft and its capabilities. I think with the arrival of more drones, and eventually when we start to get an unmanned strike platform at some point, whatever that will look like, I think Top Gun is going to be aware of how to bring that into the fold. I mean, the key thing that if I were to talk to a Top Gun class or if I were to talk to the staff would be never forget where you came from and never forget what you've done. Remember that that boldness must be carried forward. When I've talked to, you know, like I said, the successive line of skippers since Pop left, I see that mentality continuing and that awareness. And it's good because it's got to come from the top down to help Mm -hmm. the younger people remember what it is they came from. The issues that we've been talking about here, some of them were 60, 50 years ago. I found in my interviews, when you're interviewing somebody about what happened in 1977, sometimes their memory isn't real good. And it really needs to be prodded and it not any ill comment about them. It's just life goes on. And a lot of people left Top Gun, went on to be admirals. They left, they went into industry. They were president CEOs. They did a lot of very successful things. And as we all know, you fill that space when you move on to the next area. I mean, I'm certainly learning that as a retired lawyer. (laughs) Those spaces are getting filled with other things. Mm -hmm. So I know that happened. And so I'm hoping that this book, particularly with my documentation of the footnotes and people like yourself who were there and lived it. I'm hoping that that will always be the source of reflection and knowing what it was that backs that statement that you made earlier about we stand on the shoulders of giants. What made them giants? And the hope that the instructors of today will ask themselves, what am I doing that will in 20 years make somebody feel like I was a giant and that we as a staff were giants? And I think that is something that's a a valid thing. From my contact with the school, I see that as at least an awareness, and that's good. If that awareness goes away, I think that's a problem. Well, I hope it never does. You think there'll be a Top Gun 100th anniversary? I sure hope so. I know I won't be there. (laughs) Well, I want to comment on what you talked about, the people. You mentioned it a couple of times. One is you've made friends, and so true. I mean, I can only imagine what you went through to write this book, Brad, but having been there and gone through the murder board process, I can tell you that some of your best friends, and it's because those burdens are shared and, and those staff meetings, like you said, the stand boards where you're fighting out to figure out what the best tactic is. You come away from that a better person. And I just want to comment on what you said about the success of Top Gun instructors, because I think of myself as a bit of an outlier. I'm one of only a couple that I know of who did not screen for command. And I'll take blame for that because of other personality faults or whatever the case might be. But yes, I mean, so many of them, there are some that were on the staff with me that are two-star generals in the Marine Corps and and one-star admirals and on their way. And like you said, some get out and go to industry and do real well. I just think that it is an amazing organization. I want to put you on the spot here, uh, Brad, but I've mentioned this before on the show. It's been a little while, but I, I know you can work with me here. I've always tried to compare a fighter pilot, and for today's sake, I'll say a Top Gun instructor, to borrow from Wayling Jennings, doctors and lawyers and such, right? And to not necessarily 
put them in other categories, I suppose, with cowboys primarily. But I did have an attorney once write me and say, well, you might take my industry a little too highly. So I'm not looking for you to slander (laughs) your previous profession. But having interviewed over 450 of us and knowing what you know, am I right? Are fighter pilots on par with doctors and lawyers and such? I think without a doubt. The first time I went to Top Gun and met the staff in 95, my only experience was the movie. And I remember telling my wife at the time, wow, what a shock. They are not like the movie. They're humble beyond word. And my experiences in this book has just compounded that. I mean, the ideas, the concepts that the Top Gun instructors and the staff embrace, the ability to have discussions on serious issues with massive consequences, and to be able to do that with the idea of getting to the best answer, not fluffing their own feathers, is something that in the corporate world just really doesn't exist and it's foreign. And you get into a conversation in the corporate world and somebody's going to pull rank on you. Well, I've been here for this time and I know what I'm talking about, buddy. You just don't see that. Of all the people I interviewed in this book, I can only think of one individual, and that says a lot, who didn't refer to us, we, the staff. Well, that wasn't necessarily me. I was there and I was involved in that, but it really was a group. The appreciation for the fellow staff members, Mm. the humility of the individuals. But then you talk to them and you realize that I'm only getting the tip of the iceberg of the person's knowledge because the rest of the iceberg is under the confidentiality water (laughs) and they can't talk to me. And I'm absolutely blown away by the ability to grasp the issue, to communicate the issues, to cut them down to the actual points. I think the top gun instructors that I've met head and shoulders above a lot of people I've met in the private world. (laughs) 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 I'm probably going to get in trouble by saying that, but whatever. That's why I'm retired. Yeah. It's a great bunch. You know, I think the fact, I mean, you mentioned admirals and everything. A lot of Top Gun people also have gotten out and gone on to very successful careers, yourself included. And think about the people that have started some of the companies Mm -hmm. that focus on the Top Gun methodology and they apply it to other industry and how successful they've been. And I think that is a testament to the type of people, the caliber of people. I mean, when we were at that reunion and that Friday night, we're having dinner and I'm looking around that room. And by that time, I'd probably interviewed maybe. 375 of the people in that room. And I'm looking around there. I'm going, my gosh, the people, the accomplishments, the integrity of the room. It just blew me away. Mm-hmm. And that says a lot. It yeah. says a lot. I still consider it the high water mark of my career. And it yeah. happened relatively early. So <laughs> that says a lot. But it was fantastic. And uh, Brad, you have also been amazing today. So for those who are asking for longer discussions, I hope you're satisfied. As we stated earlier, there is a lot of stuff we didn't talk about. I mean, there was exploitation aircraft that had a play in the tactics. There was so many other things. But the one that we might need to just say the name of, since this is Top Gun month and we're all getting ready for it, is the sequel. And you do address it in your book. And of course, you had to hit print before you knew that they were going to delay it yet again. (laughs) But here we are. We finally get to see it in May of 22. And I don't think there's a whole lot we can talk about because as you and I record this and as the listener hears it, it's still not going to be out completely. But I know Grand was there when they were filming and 
by all accounts, it sounds like it has the Navy's support again or did and will continue. And from those who have had a chance to see it, it looks like it's going to be good. So just real quick before we wrap up and anything to say about Top Gun Maverick? I look forward to it. I've seen the previews that I'm sure you've seen as well. I'm glad that they did it. And I know they've taken some pains to take it to the next level, in particular compared to the first movie with the flight scenes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we had access to, pictures of the Top Gun Maverick aircraft, I was considering putting those in the book. But the deal was, well, you can't reveal these photographs until the movie comes out. I think at the point that we had access to the photographs, there had already been at least two continuances of the movie. And I thought, I am not going to strap myself to that. And I'm not going to have a problem here. If I, I mean, as a lawyer, there's certain things you know you don't cross, and I don't want to cross something like that. So we decided not to go with that. So yeah. I've talked to several people that played a consulting role in the movie, several people with the Navy, and you know they were very justifiably uh, secretive about it just because that's what they were required to do. And right. So I don't know a whole lot about the movie uh, other than really what we've seen. I look forward to it. I think it would be interesting. I, the one thing I hope it does I hope it gives a little more light to what the instructors really do, because I don't feel yes. that Top Gun, the movie original, really paid justice to the staff and what they really stand for. I think that was one of the negatives of the movie. Well, you and I are recording this in early May. I actually get to see it this week on the base here locally. They're going to have a viewing for military members and retirees, so that's good. So by the time this episode comes out, I'll have seen it, but I won't obviously... Uh, spoil it on subsequent episodes. But the one part though, I will say from the trailer, the last trailer that bothers me, Brad, is what we've spent the last two hours describing. And you just summarized it earlier is the humility. There's the character who says, we're all the best there is. Who are they going to find to instruct us? That just curls my blood because I never saw that. Not once, not on the two and a half years I was there wearing light blue as the two years when I went back wearing the dark blue and, and had to work with those gentlemen and ladies, but also at the reunion, I wouldn't point to any one of them and say, oh, he would either say that or thinks that. That, yeah, I hope that's taken out of context for the trailer. <laughs> that got me too. I'm glad you brought it up because I was going and I thought, well, maybe I don't. <laughs> I did not ever encounter that attitude. And when I saw that clip pop on the internet, I remember telling a couple of friends, I said, that's not right. That's not the attitude that a Top Gun instructor has ever revealed to me. I mean, obviously in different settings than you, you were in actually there as a witness to it for all the hours I was there. That just goes contrary to the whole cultural development of the school and what they stand for. And I don't know how many people told me, boy, if you think you're the best of the best, then it's time for you to retire. Mm -hmm. One of the classes that I teach is a communications class. And I spent a lot of time as a lawyer being a communicator, arguing in the appellate court and presenting. One of the things that I used to tell my students as lawyers and my students in the university is you will never give a perfect speech. If you're good, you always find something that didn't go right. And if you ever give a perfect speech, you should make it your last because you either have lost <laughs> the will to improve or you really did hit it out of the park. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think some of the Top Gun instructors that I've talked to have related that approach to me as well with regard to your lectures and your murder board process. And yeah. they all admit, I will never give a perfect lecture. It's because they always are aware and self-analyzing of what they've done to know that I can always do something a little better. 
I saw homie Cedar Holmes threat air to air missiles the day after he murder boarded it. I was in the class and I put it in that how to instruct. I think you said you borrow that, right? For your class. I actually use your how to instruct in my class. I do. Well, he was to my viewing, he was perfect. And I was mesmerized and I thought, uh oh, how am I supposed to do this? <laughs> anyway, Brad, all right, well, let's wrap this up and uh, and get you out of here. As you look back at the roughly 10 years of thinking about and writing this and everything you've learned and all the people you've spoken to and all the effort you put into this, if there is a way to succinctly say it, what is the takeaway? What is the Top Gun legacy? I think the legacy of Top Gun is the culture of excellence. I really do. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's not. There's such importance by the staff of making sure that the product that they deliver is as best as it can be. And they go through so many different avenues to reach that. The stand board, the murder board, the way they talk with one another. To me, the amazing part of the school, which is hard to articulate, I don't know if I did it or not, but is how the school was able to pass that from one generation of instructors to another. Because I think from our talk today, people could probably put together that most of the instructors terms were about three years. Some of them came back. Some of them were two. A few of them maybe were four for weird reasons. Mm -hmm. But that's the time that you're there. And your first year, as you know, is you got a lot of things going on. The ball really doesn't get rolling as an instructor until your second and third year. And to think that a group is able to collectively pass on that culture, which is hard to articulate, but through actions to the next group, to the next group, to the next group, and continue to grow it. I think it's the remarkable story of Top Gun. It isn't about making X the best pilot he or she could be. It isn't about making that great pilot a great instructor as much as it is the ability to pass on that culture. And so the culture that Top Gun inadvertently developed, going back to the days of the founders with, we have to be credible, and then how they went about doing that is the factor that has sustained the school throughout all of these years and throughout its hardship and has given the instructors the motivation and the drive to make sure that when a threat came up, and I don't necessarily mean a MiG-29, I mean a threat right. to the program, that they've been able to get in front of it or react to it to make sure that it was addressed. And without that culture, and if something happens to destroy that culture, a Top Gun will change. I really think the thing that, that I take away is that it's truly a culture of excellence created by amazing people who have the philosophy of do no harm to those who come before you mm -hmm. as a motive, as a high operating pr principle. And man, you just don't see that. And coming yeah. from the corporate world, you don't see that. Yeah. Rare situations. And it's perpetuated by follow-on generations that want to keep that going. But your last comment is, it was what I was thinking while you were talking, which is even I've been approached, hey, can you come talk to my group at this company? And you know, we want to be more like Top Gun. And I think to take something that already has its own culture and try to turn it into something like Top Gun is way harder than if you just start it like the founding fathers did from the get-go like that. And so I always couch it with that. But also, hey, look, if you're in business, it maybe isn't quite the same as life or death. And so I think people need to keep that in mind. But nevertheless, I think Top Gun thanks in part to the movies, and I'm sure there'll be a resurgence, has been very much glamorized, but rightly so. And I think you summarized it well. 
So Brad, you're retired, quote unquote. You talked about maybe a volume two, but what's otherwise the future for you? You're still dabbling in some professing or instructing, but you got another book you're working on? I'm looking into a couple different book opportunities. I'm still floating a sequel to my Super Hornet book to bring it forward. I'm looking at a couple books on the history of air combat that would cover the interwar period and kind of be a part of a trilogy. Okay. I'm looking at an outer air battle book. And then I've got a historical fiction novel, <laughs> historical ah. fiction book that I'm developing. You know, I started this whole process years and years ago with the idea of writing a novel. In the process of writing novels, I started to read all these neat articles and books by people. And I thought, wow, that would be fun. I wish I could do that. I decided to take the reverse approach of Tom Clancy of being a novelist who went into nonfiction. So I thought, well, what if I'm a nonfiction guy who went into novels? That's how I started writing. I kind of like to return to that idea of maybe writing a novel. Okay. Uh, have it military related, but not be, you know, today's cutting edge, but a historical one that I could work out of. So that's kind of what I'm looking at. All right. I've been playing a lot of guitar and hanging out with my dogs. <laughs> And my wife and I have been doing some fun trips. So, Oh, good. Well, the winter 2022 hook journal just showed up today and I tore it open before our interview and I saw you in there as well. So you're clearly uh, still keeping pretty busy, but guitar and dogs. Okay. I was going to ask you about a rocking chair, but that's close, but it doesn't sound like there's going to be moss going to be growing on you. So no, I try to keep active and have fun and it's nice to have the time to be able to do things like that now. All right. Final question. Did anyone along the line ever decide to bestow a call sign on you? Because if not, I've got one ready. I do not have one, no. All right. So hopefully the listeners will validate for me. But based on our two and a half hours together here, Brad, I'm going to go with the Oracle with the word the. Because if you remember from the movie, The Matrix, the Oracle is wise, knowledgeable, well-spoken, and willing to spend the time. And you've done that today. So I'm bestowing the Oracle upon you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, <laughs> I don't know if I have the authority to, but we'll see what others think. Well, that's good. And then when someday somebody asks you, oh yeah, how'd you get that? You could say, oh, because of a question about how did you get a call sign in the first place on the Fighter Pilot Podcast? Absolutely. Well, they always say, you know, you can't create one because then uh, it'll backfire. You that's right. What people give you. So there we go. Uh, there you go. It is, it is <laughs> given you. to you. Brad, you've been amazing. I just want to thank you on behalf of, if I may do so, all Top Gun instructors for capturing what you did in this book, because like us, it is to the point, it is factual, it is not necessarily self-pointing and aggrandizing. I think you did represent the bros, as we call us, quite well. And so on behalf of all them, I want to thank you for the book. I want to thank you on behalf of the listeners for all the other books. And just for me as well, because this has been a lot of fun and I really hope people will enjoy our conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about this. I certainly appreciate everything that you've done and the fellow bros. I dedicated the book to the staff of the school. And I think that that is what defines the school. It was a great experience. I do it over again. I really had a lot of fun doing it. I learned a lot and I learned a lot about myself. So it was a good deal for me too. Big thanks again to Brad for sharing his expertise with us based on his nearly decade-long endeavor writing this book, which now that I was brave enough to crack it open, I have to tell you, I'm really enjoying. Also, man, he was, wow, two hours, almost 40 minutes. That is by far my longest interview yet. And so that's why we 
decided to divide it up a little bit. Now, as we stated multiple times, we certainly did not cover the entire Top Gun story in these two episodes. And, you know, arguably, I bet Brad probably feels the same about his 700-page book. But I certainly hope both he and I collectively have done the Navy Fighter Weapons School justice. So that will do it for this week. If all goes to plan, we'll be back in just five days for a revisit of one of our earliest episodes comparing Top Gun the School to Top Gun the Movie, the original movie, that is. After that bonus, we'll talk with two gentlemen who were lieutenants at Naval Air Station Miramar in 1985 and had a hand in filming the movie. In fact, one of them has a couple cameos. It's all coming up here on Top Gun Month on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.